Hi there, and welcome to the Pink Elephant Podcast, where we cover the most undiscussed issue in the body of Christ today, that despite all we know, it can feel as though there is something missing in our faith experience. What you are about to hear is our first ever interview on the show with Dr. Omar Joandi. I happened to be invited rather randomly to a workshop last year where Dr. Omar would be sharing thoughts from his newest book, Redefining Success According to Jesus. From there, I have participated in a small group with Dr. Omar and we've connected as fellow writers. And it would be an understatement to say that his revelations shared through this book have impacted me. I won't tell you too much because I think it would be best for you to hear it from him, but I just wanted to encourage you to visit Dr. Omar's website, redefiningsuccess.com.au. Not only can you buy his book from here, but you can also download a free chapter and you can sign up for his small groups and plenty more. That website again is redefiningsuccess.com.au. Go check it out. Well, welcome to the Pink Elephant Podcast. Today we have our first ever interview with Dr. Omar Joandi. I'm actually so excited about this uh, particular episode because this message that he is about to share with you that comes out of his book, Redefining Success According to Jesus, was actually a message that really spoke to my life last year. It was a specific area that God brought to the surface which needed to be dealt with. And so because of Dr. Omar's book, which was so timely to have discovered that. Uh, I sit here today a lot freer as a human being than I was 12 months ago. And so I'm so grateful to today have him on the show to be able to share this incredible revelation that he has had, that he is wanting to offer to the Christian world so that we all can benefit. So he is here today and he is recording with me and welcome Dr. Omar. Wow. Um, Thank you so much, Melanie, and thank you for those kind words. And then you've been a refreshment to me as well in your show, The Pink Elephant. I've listened to some episodes. Uh, Wow, I commend your courage uh, (laughs) tackle the hard issues. And um, it's so necessary because as as followers of Jesus, um, we have blind spots. We have those areas that we think uh, we know everything about. Uh, But as you're pointing out, uh, there are these uh, issues that we really need to explore more deeply. So well done, and it's a delight, honour and privilege for me to join you. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, just really, I think your whole subject, like your whole subject matter is a pink elephant in itself. So I'm <laughs> really excited for you to jump into this, but can you tell, I'd love it if you could just um, tell our like listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure, with the name of um, Omar Joandi, uh, confusion already begins there. Um, and I say to people, uh, I'm ethnically Chinese, born in Indonesia, and at the age of 10, our family emigrated to Australia. Uh, now, it was a very different Australia back then. Uh, in the early 70s, it was the white Australia immigration policy, and I'm not a white. And so uh, first two, three years of schooling, I got bullied a lot. Um, I'm not very big. And uh, I didn't learn Kung Fu, so I couldn't threaten or bash the people who were bullying me. Uh, So some lunchtime, I'd just be on my own because that way I didn't get bullied. And so with a subject we're doing success back then for me, I didn't have to be a cool kid. I didn't have to be one of the popular ones just to stop being bullied once in a while and stop feeling like I was the odd one out. Um, so you can imagine there were lots of wounds from back then. I'm a strong introvert by personality. 
Um, and then the other challenge growing up, um, I wanted to have the approval of my dad, but that was really hard. He was an aeronautical engineer, intense perfectionist. Oh. Now, you would want an aeronautical engineer to be intense perfectionist at his work. But sadly for us uh, as his children, he often didn't de-link work from home. So I have painful memories, for example. I think I came third or something in a maths test. I thought I did well and I showed dad the result and I thought he would say, you know, good job, son. Or he said, son, these questions you got wrong, they're so easy. How could you be so stupid? Ouch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I quickly learned that for dad, anything less than 100% was as good as a failure. Um, now, uh, fast forward at the age of 23, I finally gained my dad's approval when I graduated as a medical doctor. Um, I was at the pinnacle of a success. Uh, I had my dad's approval, finally heard those rare words, son, I'm proud of you. He was bragging about me to his mates. I had a beautiful girlfriend, a prestigious financially secure career ahead of me. What more could a 23-year-old want? But the medical profession is intense. The pressure to perform, always one more rung to climb. A classmate, brilliant doctor, years into his medical training, um, suicided. It shows that success is elusive. Mm. Even when you get a taste of it, you crave more and more, and it's never enough. Mm. And so suffering the disapproval of my dad, um, a classmate suicided, uh, those sort of scenarios. Along the way, I kept thinking, well, what is success? Yeah. Uh, so I kept thinking about that. So some years later, um, I got some clarity that God was wanting me to work or serve him overseas. And I thought, well, yeah, there are lots of good Bible schools in, in Sydney, in Australia. But then I'd be learning a lot of Western theology. But then I'll get to Africa and I have to unlearn a whole bunch of stuff. So, by the way, that's another pink elephant, <laughs> uh, Western theology. Yeah. Um, and then I'd have to unlearn and relearn. You know, I have to wrestle with issues of poverty and justice, uh, polygamy. Uh, so I heard about this great Bible college in Nairobi, Kenya, that had just started several years back uh, called Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology. A uh, long name and mouthful. Eventually, they changed it to Africa International University. So I did a Master's of Theology there. And I love being a student there because I didn't have to prove anything. I could just be there as a learner. I connected deeply with uh, my Kenyan roommate, uh, fellow students uh, from all parts of Africa. And I'd be in conversations when some of the Africans, having been wounded by missionaries, they would say, you know, well, the problem with missionaries, they're like this, they're like that. And then they'd just be pouring, venting their anger and their hurt. Um, and I'd just be there. And I thought, ouch, is that what the impact missionaries could be doing? And so I learned a lot from the poor and the uneducated in, in Africa. Um, one of my heroes of faith is the lady who helped us because in Kenya, um, at that time, a lot of things you had to do by hand. Um, water in Nairobi wasn't very reliable. So no use having a washing machine because you can't turn the water on. Uh, so we had a lady who helped us clean our clothes. And um, she was a devoted follower of Jesus. And I learned a lot about the practical side of what it means 
to follow Jesus. Uh, despite her lack of education, she had a genuine faith. So I loved my years in uh, studying in Kenya. Then uh, some years later, I became a pastor. Uh, I joined my roommate. So the guy who was my roommate, Oscar Muriu, eventually became a pastor of a church called Narubi Chapel. And he asked me to join him as an associate pastor. And in the six years I was there, the church grew from several hundred to nearly 2,000 people. I loved the sort of vibrant uh, faith and with the growth, a lot of university students, young adults were coming to the Lord. I did lots of weddings. There were a couple of Saturdays. I even did two weddings <laughs> on the same day. And so I had to keep looking at my notes often to make sure I'm saying the right names. Um <laughs> And then God uh, challenged us to return to Australia. To be honest, it was hard to return to Australia, yeah. having been in that environment of, of uh, church growth, training young adults to be starting churches, different places, uh, to serve as national director of SIM Australia. So I did that for 15 years. And then um, a couple of years ago, I did the revised edition of my book, Redefining Success According to Jesus. Wow. What a wealth of experience and a few like different roles that you've played really in life. And um, but I must say that there are so many circumstances that you talked about that not only for myself, but I'm sure uh, the listeners could relate to, you know, need wanting to have the approval of your father or it could be a mother for some of our listeners. But it's something we all can relate to right we want to keep we want to make our parents proud and we don't always feel that they are proud of us uh and even you know some of the bullying things that you went through as well uh yes like it sort of puts in perspective sometimes uh how we can the brokenness and things that happen in our lives that bring us towards this place of pursuing success and not even questioning it really because we see success as our hope for our living experience uh i would love if you could tell us a little bit about the book how did you come to write it and why did you write it what what were you trying to achieve when you wrote this book yeah so as i mentioned through my teenage years even um university early years as a doctor success was a theme uh in my mind and i wrestled uh probably it came ahead on when i believe god was challenging me to be willing to leave a full-time medical career in australia to go and study at Bible college in Kenya. Uh, so I mentioned I was at the, in my father's eyes, I was a success. So when I mentioned to him that I'm going to leave uh, the medical career in Australia, train to a Bible college and possibly become a pastor or whatever, in his eyes, I went from somebody who was on par with an aeronautical engineer way down. Um, I never quite understood how low in his eyes I went, but. Clearly, I did not have his approval. And we had lots of arguments. And I remember one of the times when he said, son, you're leaving a prestigious, financially secure career as a medical doctor in Australia to become what? A beggar. Mm. He knew I was interested in joining SIM. Like many mission organizations, we invite people to join our team, to pray for us, to support us financially. So dad said, you're going to go around churches. You're going to ask friends, family. You're begging to support you yeah. uh, in the first year i was i was in kenya he said you don't listen to what i tell you i'm not gonna communicate to you do whatever you want uh so you know it's almost like i got disowned for the first year yeah. um so feeling like a failure in the eyes of my dad 
And then I had people, even in my church, telling me, why are you doing a stupid thing? Why are you being so foolish? You know, we need Christian doctors in Australia. So all this opposition, I kept going back to Jesus. Jesus, how do you define success? I'm a failure in my dad's eyes. Now, ironically, I wasn't a failure in most of my non-Christian friends. They, they said something like, oh, well, we always thought you were a little crazy at uni, you know, what's the big deal? Just go do it. Uh, but it was among Christian leaders in my church, my dad, I was a failure. And I started digging deep. Now, fast forward, what, when it really came to a head was in September, uh, as a result of September 11. Now, some of your listeners weren't born back then yet, but then, <laughs> anyway, there was the Al-Qaeda attack on the World Trade Center. And I was working as a GP um, back then. And for, for some months afterwards, I noticed there was a higher number of people coming in asking for sedatives and medication for anxiety and depression. Um, and so there was almost like a palpable fear in the air um people were saying as if you know nobody can keep us safe anymore now to be honest we were all deluded to think that the government was keeping us safe or whatever Mm. um but people were asking the deeper questions they were thinking about their foundations security values beliefs um and really it showed how shaky most people's foundations were. So I vividly remember, because I was working at a practice where you could see the car park, you see these people come in their fancy Mercedes, Lamborghini and so on. And then in their suit, and they're asking me for anxiety medication or sedatives. Um, It forced them to think if life is so fragile and transient, what are we living for? Yeah. What truly counts? What's the meaning and purpose of life uh, when life is so uncertain? Now, all these questions have been um, thrown at us in the last couple of years with the COVID pandemic. That's right. Um, Where can I find peace and hope? What can be an anchor for my soul? Um, Now, with my medical training, we've always been trained prevention is better than cure and and don't do the Band-Aid therapy, quick fixes, because you've got to dig deep. And, and so I thought, well, yeah, I, I can prescribe medication as I did because that's what was the, the temporary. But I knew that it wasn't going to last. For, for these people, sedatives and anxiety, antidepressant, it's just a Band-Aid therapy in many ways. Um, sometimes it's important, but it's almost like we've got a cancer in our soul. We're obsessed with success. What does it really get us? Mm. So there's a great quote by a lady named Harriet Rubin um, in a magazine called Fast Company. She wrote, of all the subjects we obsess about, success is the one we lie about the most. That success and its cousin money will make us secure. That success and its cousin power will make us important. That success and its cousin fame will make us happy. It's time to tell the truth. Why are our generation's smartest, most talented, most successful people flirting with disaster in record numbers? People are using all their means to get money, power, and glory, and then self-destructing. As I thought about, well, what is the cure for the cancer of worldly success and greed? Uh, I looked to the teachings of Jesus. I did deeper, further Bible studies for myself. Um, Then it became um, Bible studies that I led others in. 
And then as a result of the September 11, at that time, I was working as a doctor, but I also did a lot of preaching. I had the chance to uh, turn into a sermon. I started preaching about it. Then when I returned to Kenya as a pastor, I thought, because we tend to do four-week series, I thought I could do a four-week series on redefining success according to Jesus. Uh, then with the rapid growth of our church, we needed to raise funding to build a new sanctuary. Um, as pastors, we committed to raising money. So the Lord put a seed of a thought to convert the sermon series into a small book, 70 pages, and to sell it and then raise funding that way. And so that was the first edition, only 70 pages uh, back in 2002. Uh, the revised edition is about 240 pages. I had a, I had a tough editor. They kept asking, uh, I think this point needs expanding. Uh, you need to be clearer about this. And of course, it was a good opportunity to um, boost uh, some of the Bible uh, passages, the explanations on that, and then the application. You know, back then there wasn't social media, Facebook, Envy, any of that sort of stuff. So that's why I did the revised edition. Mm, but the book definitely benefited from your editors like pushing for you to expand because uh, one of the things that I really liked about your book is how practical it is. Like a lot of books, you you uh, you know, you are faced with the theoretical ideas, but your book kind of took it to another level where um, you had some meat to be able to go. Oh, this is what I can do with this. So, uh, so you know, kudos to your editor for that reason. But yes, yes, I, I, I joke about. It. I'm I love my editor, Andrea. Um, she, she did a great job. Uh, and the book also has uh, reflection questions because it's not just, just reading, it's not just theory. Uh, how do we apply it? And then um, discussions to be used for Bible study groups or cell groups uh, so to apply with others. Uh, mm. Because I'll be upfront and honest to all your listeners. No one can redefine success according to Jesus by themselves. Mm. Um, so I, I, I don't want to put anyone on a guilt trip or, you know, six months from now, somebody said, oh, you know, that guy, he told us we could redefine success according to Jesus and I'm failing miserably. Uh, well, we all fail at some point, uh, but we can only do it together. Uh, so we need others to, to show our blind spots, uh, to support us and a mutual interdependence and accountability mm. is the ideal. It's like the greenhouse, you know, in the greenhouse, the plants grow faster uh, that's the kind of environment we need mm. one of the things that i really uh, loved about how you described your journey to to write this book was uh, how you talked about the sort of juxtaposition of these people with really expensive cars you know driving in and then needing anxiety medication and it, you know on the surface they look like they're doing life so well but underneath there is like you know um there there is a kind of suffering, I guess, that that is not being acknowledged, right? And so we often will look at that and we we might judge on the surface and think, oh, that person's doing really well, but we don't necessarily see all the, the underneath that's going on. And I think there is like some acknowledgement uh, for most Christians at least that uh, if if you, it, it doesn't take you very long to realise that just because everything looks okay that, you know, it that everything is okay under the surface. And we often look at, you know, the Kim Kardashians of the world and the Kanye West, and we put them in like this separate box as though they are like seeking success in a very different capacity to us. 
and uh, but you know we can see all of the failings of their lives like in fact very quite transparent really yes and, um one of the things that i really loved about your book is that uh, you know, it goes beyond acknowledging just the fact that, okay, well, success isn't really what we think it is. Like it's, there is like a not good component to it. And in some ways, because we compartmentalize like that, we let ourselves off the hook and go, oh, but my pursuit of success is okay. But the way that you actually delved into the book, like the degree to which our pursuit of success, a worldly kind of success is actually destructive to us was I think very, very confronting and to the point where you can't ignore it. Like you cannot ignore the impact that this uh, pursuit of success, uh, that I should say worldly success is is doing to us. And, um, you know, like that was a big thing for me, but what would you say is like the key points of your message? Like what in your mind is the critical part of this message for believers today? Yeah, as you said, Melanie, um, most people suffer from harmful definitions of success. So a question I would put to your listeners, is your definition of success harming you? Now, when I've raised that question in churches and people, uh, they look shocked and they think, what? I have a harmful definition of success? Yeah, as you say, we, we look at all these people that are often on social media and their messed up lives, the divorce rate, the suicide, mental health, all those things. And we think, oh, no, no, we're smarter than them, you know. And, and I'm not as crazy as that. I don't need that much success. I just need my little piece of success. The problem is whenever we define success according to like what we possess, the house we live in, the cars we drive, or our achievements, the approval of others, as I mentioned, or um, being popular, uh, the pleasures we could afford, um, or how beautiful I am, how handsome and muscular I am, or when somebody put the, uh, something on Instagram, you know, how many likes they're going to get. Um, I know people who, after they've posted something, they suffer anxiety. Someone close to me admitted to me for the next hour they are anxious to see how many likes they're going to get. So anytime we define success according to any of these outward symbols, we suffer harm. And the harm is that because there's always somebody who has more, we always end up comparing ourselves. Um, you know, now people are becoming more honest. Facebook has, has been grilled about the harm it's causing. And a lot of it is because of the comparison. But don't blame Facebook. I mean, who's doing the comparison? Mm. Us. Who's not being smart enough to know that, you know, when I see your posts or other people post, is the best of the best they can post. Um, but we think, oh, my life isn't as good as theirs and so on. So there's all these ongoing comparison and competition, sibling rivalry, you know. I have good friends who one of their, like a close friend, he said, well, growing up, it's always you're never as beautiful as your sister. You're never as intelligent as her. And all these lies, and and um, we, we've heard some of those things. So there's always this harm of competition, um, and you mentioned about the emptiness because all these things that, that the worldly success, it never satisfies. Mm. It might quench our thirst a little bit, but it leaves us craving more. Mm. And so we suffer the never enough syndrome. 
you know, somebody moves into a new house, they might be happy for about five years, seven years. Then they, they need to move to a bigger house, a, a better house, a house closer to the waterfront or higher on the hill. Um, and even when they buy a new car, maybe for six months till the next model comes out, uh, even if they earn a certain uh, promotion, then their eyes is on the next one, the next one. It's the never enough syndrome. Now, the tragedy for me is that for us who are Christians, we say we followers of Jesus. How do we define success? Well, when I'm speaking, I show a PowerPoint slide of the worldly definition of success. And then I say, well, let me show you the slide where I think most Christians define success most of the time. And here it is. It's the same slide, mm. the same list of possessions, popularity, power, appearance, status, outward symbols. And I say, no, it's not that we've had a glitch in the system. I would suggest that most of the time, Christians, we're after the same thing. I mean, sure, we, we modify it a little. We say, you know, well, unlike the people in the world, they, they lie, they cheat, sometimes they steal, they gossip, they put down others, they trample over others to climb the ladder of success. You know, no, we, we, we don't do that. We will get there through honest hard work or by faith or by obedience. Uh, we name it and claim it. Mm. Every denomination has their formula. But we're leaning the ladder of success against the same wall. Do we ask the question, how does Jesus define success? Again, when I ask that, I see blank looks in people who've been Christians for years. They think, oh, how does Jesus define success? Did he say these things that we've just mentioned, but just get there through honest hard work or by faith? Well, one of the stories in the Gospels in Luke 12, Jesus was out teaching and um, it was uh, by the Lake of Galilee. I've been there, possibly where he might have done this or at least similar scenarios. And it's a beautiful setting. Um, the, the hillside there is usually about 30, 45 degrees, uh, so natural acoustic. Um, and so Jesus was teaching. And then a young person, most likely young, I guess. Uh, anyway, a man interrupted him and said, teacher, tell my brother to invite the inheritance with me. And so this man um, brought out into the public uh, interpersonal conflict. Um, now, Jesus, he went to the heart of the issue. He saw that the man suffered from the cancer of what we call now worldly success or greed. So Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So in one sentence, Jesus contradicted worldly success. He said, life is not about what you possess. It's not about all these outward symbols. Now, even back then, it was the most challenging concept to understand because most devoted Israelites back then, similar to today, they think success is when God has blessed you and you're prospering, you're uh, established, everything seems to be going well. So Jesus then told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. 
take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Hey, the all Australian, all American dream come true that I could retire early and I can just say, take it easy, mate. All you got to think about is what you're going to drink, <laughs> what you're going to eat. Now, the man thought he was on the pinnacle of success. In the eyes of the, his peers, his family, they thought he was a success. But what was God's assessment of him? And this is the warning, what God said to the man, you fool, tonight you will die. Who will get all that you've stored up for yourself? Then Jesus turned to the crowd and his disciples, and he warns all of us, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for themselves, mm. but is not rich towards God. So to be a success in God's eyes is to be rich towards God. Mm. And then Jesus went on to say, therefore, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink. And then um, as he continues his teachings, I believe what Jesus is saying are the three essentials to be rich towards God, to be a success in God's eyes. And that's to be God's child, to be kingdom focused, and to give generously. Mm. Easy, right? <laughs> no, How hard is that? That's why we're being God's child, being kingdom focused, and give generously. Uh, so it's easy in theory. That's really not that hard. You don't need to go to Bible college to understand that. Uh, that the challenge is in the application. Mm. Uh, so through my book, often I talk about that we have these blind spots where we've adopted, accepted. I mean, we inherited some of these worldly success. I think it's in my DNA to mm -hmm. define success according to achievements. I sometimes say that I'm a recovering overachiever. <laughs> um, and, and it's there. Mm -hmm. I wake up most mornings thinking, what am I going to do? And, and Jesus sometimes reminds me, how about asking how, what am I going to be? Yes. How am I going to be throughout today? Yeah. Because it's out of our being that we do. Yes. And if we're so obsessed about what we do, what we achieve, we may miss out on this intimacy that God desires for us. So we don't have to live, keep suffering the never enough syndrome. We can apply Jesus' life-giving definition of success and experience his contentment whether we have little or whether we have much, we can experience this joy even when we're suffering from COVID, cancer, adversity. Um, as I mentioned to you, our maid, the lady that helped us in Kenya, in her poverty, she experienced joy because she con was connected with Jesus. Mm. And, and so we can have a, live a radically different life uh, yeah. by redefining success according to Jesus. Yeah. So the three that you mentioned, so being a child of God, uh, giving generously, I've missed the second one. Um, being kingdom focused. Being kingdom focused. The interesting thing about those three is that theoretically they aren't actually complicated ideas. I think, and I, I wonder if you agree with this, is that actually part of the challenge is shedding this definition that we have often, you know, like it, appears as though uh, it stems often from childhood that, that we've already developed about success. Because what I think like one of the things that I found really interesting last year when I was sort of 
confronting my own challenges with feeling like a failure is how visceral this definition of success is. Like it's not, it's not like I one day sat down and went, hmm, I think this is what success is. It's like this inner need that we've developed over life that yeah, we want to define ourselves some way. We want to know that we are doing something right, but it's gotten so morphed with, you know, like other agendas that we have for needs, emotional needs to be met, that it's like, you know, um, quite detrimental really. So what I would love if you could expand on this is what would you say are the signs that there is a worldly definition that is actually driving our behavior and driving our desire for success. Yeah, no, it's interesting you use the word signs. So, so this reminds me of my medical training. Uh, we talk about symptoms and signs. Uh, so, so the symptoms are what the person is suffering and then they tell us, you know, I have a headache or a cough or whatever. The signs are the things that, that uh, doctors can observe. So if I put that definition, there's a great question. I thought, okay, what can I observe in your life? Or what could you observe in my life, Melanie? Mm -hmm that you watching my life what are the signs that shows that we're still driven um, by worldly definition of success um so i think what's observable and to be honest uh yeah some people are going to misinterpret me but i'll, I'll risk it anyway so right. it's our lifestyle mm. you can observe my lifestyle and observing my lifestyle will tell you what drives me uh, to give an example, or a couple of examples, when we first uh, moved into our house way back 28 years ago, a friend looked around the house and said, oh, this is a nice house for a first house. I thought, oh, is that a compliment or an insult? <laughs> hey, I think back then she meant it mostly as a compliment. <laughs> it's a good starting point. Uh, we were young then and so on. But if I'm still at the same house, Melanie, 28 years later, is that sentence a compliment or an insult? Like, who would live in the same house 28 years later? So there's this idea of our lifestyle that we, we the expectation, it's so ingrained. I keep calling it middle-class values, mm. that we move to bigger, better houses. Um, who says you've got to move to a bigger, better house? Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm not saying these things um, for people to feel sorry for me. Uh, <laughs> my house uh, it keeps us dry when it rains, relatively cool in summer, and reasonably warm in winter. What more do I need from a house? I'm not going to live in it forever. But the way some people obsess about that house, you think they're going to spend eternity there. Yes, yes. We're just passing good. through. We're, we're pilgrims. Um, now, interestingly, not too long ago, I got to visit a house on the waterfront. And looking at the view, I thought, I could have this house <laughs> if I had stayed working as a medical doctor in Australia 20 years. And sometimes Jesus says, do you want it? I, to be honest, I say, no, thanks, Lord. I'm, I'm happy. I'm content with the house I live in. Because when I looked further into this house, I thought, all the maintenance this poor friend has to do, the garden, the you know, waterfront, it's hilly. I thought, who wants to spend hours doing all these things? Well, maybe he has a gardener and pays for people. So basically the lifestyle. And um, the challenge for me when my um, one of my children between the age of 8 and 12, they were embarrassed with the house we live in 
because all his friends um, that, that he interacted with mostly, except for one or two, lived mm. in bigger, better houses. Mm. Uh, some of them are uh, a house on the waterfront. And he and I had conversations that went something like this when he would say to me, Dad, I wish you had stayed working as a medical doctor in Australia because then you could buy a bigger house, better house, two stories with a swimming pool. And you can also buy me. And he had a, like, quite a bit of a list of things he wanted me to buy him. <laughs> I tried to explain to my child, for your mum and me, life's not about the house we live in, the cars we drive. It's about following Jesus and doing what he wants us to do. My child replied, Dad, you can just say you follow Jesus and do whatever you want. People at church do that. Ouch. <laughs> My child, in his assessment, you know, what confused and somewhat disillusioned him mm. was that many of his friends who lived in bigger, better houses, some mansions on the waterfront, went to church. His conclusion was they just say they follow Jesus but they are doing whatever they want. So let me be clear in case any of your listeners uh, entice the same. If we say we follow Jesus, would it not follow that we are like Jesus, that we define success not according to the house we live in, according to Jesus' definition? Mm. So lifestyle is one. And one of my challenges to us who are middle-class Christians is that why does our lifestyle more often than not reflect our income? Why can't we live below our income mm. so that we can give more to the kingdom of God, give more to people um, who have never heard of Jesus, that the good news will be proclaimed? So just in case I forget, um, there's a great quote by John Piper. And he said that the issue is not how much a person makes. The evil is in being deceived into thinking a $100,000 salary must be accompanied by a $100,000 lifestyle. Mm. God had made us to be conduits of his grace. The danger is in thinking the conduit should be lined with gold. Mm. It should not. Copper will do. Mm. So why don't we be radical as we redefine success according to Jesus and live in functional homes, cap our lifestyle, and as God blesses us with more, we could give more. And this is not impossible. My hero in this is a guy named William Colgate. Some of us use that product, Colgate toothpaste. Yep. Um, way back when he was a young man, um, he learned to give God 10%, the tithing principle. But what's remarkable about Mr. Colgate is that as he gained more success, more prosperity, more income, he gave proportionally more. Mm. He kept his lifestyle. He didn't keep buying bigger, better mansions and so on. He just gave more and more. Now, he, he never bragged about it as far as I know, but those who were close to him estimated that by the time he retired, he gave 90% of his income. Yeah, wow. To to God, he started a university, a Christian university. Um, so there's a legacy that, that continues because he kept his lifestyle and he kept giving more. Yeah. So that would be one of the signs, 
So if we're wrapped up about our lifestyle, we define ourselves according to our house, our car. You know, I, I don't feel good about myself, so I go out, buy shopping, more things. Well, that's just all temporary relief and, and quick fixes. Uh, but by redefining success according to Jesus, we can cap a lifestyle and be radically different. So that would be one of the um, ob observable, I think. The second one, again, not many Christians do it, and I'll be honest with you, I haven't done it, is to show somebody that I'm accountable to my investment portfolio, mm. my credit card spending, my bank accounts. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Mm. By looking at uh, my investment portfolio, my credit card spending, my bank statements, you could tell what yeah. drives and what I'm about. Um, so as I said, um, very rare. I have yet to hear anybody who does that. Um, I'm thinking of doing it with, with a friend um, because I've been challenged about accountability too. Mm. Um, because often we make these big decisions you know, like a lot of um, marriages are strained now because um, both um, are working long hours and they just give leftover time to each other. Mm. But these couples, do they ask the question, what made us take such a huge mortgage in the first place? Mm. Now, with the low interest, it has been enticing for people to, but interest rate will go up sooner or later. So now some of your listeners are feeling anxious. <laughs> But again, <laughs> the question is, what made you mm. get such a huge mortgage? Is it because you define who you are according to the house you live in? Mm. Is that your security, your identity? Well, if that's the case, do the hard work and look deeper. Yeah. Um, and the solution, of course, is to connect with the real Jesus of the Bible and apply his life-giving definition of success. Uh, the third one that I can think of that's observable is our mental health status. Now, you know, different people show anxiety, fear, uh, depression in different ways. Um, but when you get to know somebody, you can observe their anxiety. Mm. Um, you know, I just mentioned about rising interest rates. If that gets your gets your anxiety going, well, that could be a, a show the driver. Um, the loans we take out, our credit card, um, that that fueling our anxiety or Facebook envy, for example, you know, when you're looking at the post. Um, I've had times when I've stopped looking at Facebook I've because I got into that cycle of comparison. Yeah. And um, so I'm vulnerable. And I on Sundays, I try to fast from technology. Um, I rarely look at my phone. So people complain, they try to call me. I thought, hey, it's Sunday. I leave my phone far away from me. I don't turn my laptop on. I try to get a Sabbath. Not that I'm legalistic about the Sabbath, but I think it's a great principle yes. to rest. Yeah. Mm. To rest our minds from being bombarded by the marketing, the comparisons, mm. the envy. Give it a rest. It just continues to affirm our like unhealthy definitions of success, doesn't it? When we continue to look at those resources that are essentially selling that idea that your your um, happiness and your enjoyment and fulfillment and satisfaction is actually dependent on having these things. That's really what marketing is about. Like if you really you know were to grill down to the uh you know the center of it uh interestingly i feel like your number three 
like anxiety and, and mental health and all that kind of stuff might have increased based on your number two because I definitely was like that is an incredible level of vulnerability to actually share your financial situation and the habits that you have developed with someone else like I mean, we all say we want vulnerability, but that's probably getting to another extreme that just lifted the anxiety levels of our listeners. So we might need some time to to think about that one. Uh, I would love it if you could talk a little bit about what it would look like for me or as an individual, as as, as one of our listeners, to 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 actually recognise that maybe they are are struggling with a worldly definition of success. So for instance, for myself, like really the sign for me was the the uh, anxiety that I was feeling about feelings of failure. Like that was like, I had never experienced anything like that before until the beginning of last year. And, you know, I was, you know, probably partly because of stepping out on this adventure of doing a podcast it was mm. probably what brought it to the surface. But for the first time, I actually felt like a failure and I was, you know, like going, where is this coming from? And even getting close to the point of panic attacks, if I actually thought about it too much and it, and it wasn't until a little bit of time passed. And then I came and saw your, uh, read your book that sort of started to dissipate. So what should us as individuals be looking out for to tell us that maybe we are struggling with worldly definition of success yeah and no, i appreciate your vulnerability there melanie uh to, to share about your anxiety and then feeling like a failure when you embarked on an, uh, a new season um so sometimes that that happens when when there's a new season um i suffered a bit of it when i was finishing up as national director of SIM australia i suffered the, the dis dis uh, diminishing influence syndrome um <laughs> And I warn uh, pastors and leaders, uh, you know, when you make a major decision, when you're retiring or whatever, uh, you will suffer the diss. And, um, and people do diss you anyway, because when they realize they can't, you know, you can't fire them, they start uh, anyway. Uh, the diminishing influence syndrome. But what you're saying is, is, is like we could be alert to our feelings. Now, you, you know, some of your listeners might be thinking, ah, oh, a male talking about feelings. This is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> it is unorthodox. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, I'm married to uh, Kay and she's a counsellor. So she has uh, worked on me or prayed for me, uh, be patient with me to be more in touch with my feelings. Uh, that uh, to Because uh, a lot of uh, the conflicts uh, uh, relates to me not being in touch with my feelings. So, um, But acknowledging that that there are some women too who struggle with being in touch with their feelings and let's not generalize there are some men yeah, who are good so the bottom line but to make it straightforward for any of us who uh, struggle uh, just be alert to the feelings when you are sad you are mad or bad okay yeah how hard is that three sad <laughs> mad or bad so growing up, I was often sad. Now, I couldn't do my self-analysis back then that my dad, um, I couldn't gain my dad's approval. Um, probably around the age of 14, 15, 16, I became more mad. I was angry with dad thinking, this is ridiculous. How could anyone get 100% come number one all the time? And, and surely, you know, all those other times I did something reasonable, he could have commanded me because with that, I only heard him 
up to the age of 23 say that he was proud of me vividly i can remember twice when i got into medicine and then when i graduated as a doctor and i think during the other you know years at high school i wasn't that rebellious not not terribly rebellious child and so on and so forth so i was mad so whenever you're feeling either sad or, or angry disappointed uh look deeper think and listen to jesus and let jesus put the spotlight on the feeling bad is sometimes like condemnation uh, shame it's hard to quantify it feels like you just want to get this you know wash it off your clothes or these stains um so that's what i'm calling bad uh yeah. sometimes anxiety fear can, can be all that uh, so any of these strong feelings that's consistent ongoing look deeper now i can tell i can be honest you know the challenge for us is to look for a quick fix so we talk about shopping um uh, when I, my influence was was diminishing then i try to exert my influence elsewhere and so on so so we're tempted to to do the quick fixes like somebody's thirsty if they're um you know it's uh, it's happened to me once i got caught in bushwalking got a bit lost so i got thirsty i thought oh if i run out of water what will happen i'll start thinking but you know when that happens and somebody's desperate they will come across a watering hole they might even see their animals hoof prints and see that the water is dirty muddy but they'll still drink it because of their desperate thirst and so that's what the bible says god has created us for himself so billy graham a famous evangelist he talked about within each one of us is a god-shaped vacuum in other words only god the creator can fill that uh, but we rebel against god but as desperate thirsty beings we need to drink so we quench our thirst with shopping uh, these outward symbols popularity approval achievements etc um instead of turning to jesus um so that's what we need to do to, to turn to jesus um this sometimes happens what was your question again am i doing uh, uh, you actually you well. you said about you know um because i was talking about those internal indicators to us that maybe we have got a worldly definition of success so uh, your answer was the sad mad and bad which i which i think is just actually so helpful and succinct because we can answer that very quickly you know like uh, i can i can tell you now like i was mad for a while and i probably didn't realize like this is you know a couple of years back that what i was mad about was the unfairness of other people achieving success that i wanted so it was a very good answer i really appreciate that and i think it'll be very useful and practical again for our listeners i um that's right I, I, now i remember um what i wanted to say um because the worldly success as i talked about is like cancer mm. um and in the early stage of cancer you don't know you have got cancer again i'm i'm not trying to increase the anxiety of listeners but the reality of it is that uh, one in sort of 40 people walk around with a cancer that they, they don't know um because it's just early now it may not be a very serious cancer it could be like a skin cancer for example but for some it will develop into a life threatening uh so in the early stages we're not aware uh but this is one of god's blessings pain for example is is a gift from god um because it tells us that there's something wrong so when we feel sad mad or bad uh, some form of pain we face adversity suffering um the temptation is for a quick fix something to quench our thirst a little but if we can resist and look deeper 
um, and allow the Holy Spirit to shine his light and we respond um, again best in community uh, with others, then we can have a heart surgery mm. and we can uh, take out or allow Jesus to take out some or cooperate with him uh, to take out some of the cancer of all this success and then to be redefining success according to Jesus. So, Dr. Omar, something that I felt really challenged by when I first picked up your book is that because of how rampant this desire for worldly success is, like you obviously know a little bit of my story, some of my listeners know a bit of my story of having worked in quite a big church and, uh, you know, this real performance-orientedness uh, that drived our behaviours in terms of church growth and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, having been in that mindset, I acknowledge that it was partly the environment and the culture of that, you know, uh, that church and, and beyond, it, that they were just one church in a whole bunch of other churches that also had this kind of belief system around growth and church strategy and attendance and it's nothing new for pastors. We, we've all heard all this stuff before, right? It can feel like there's really no hope from escaping this mindset that is just so deeply rooted in, you know, both our Christian communities, in our workplaces, even in our families around worldly success. How in the world do we resist and prevent this imposition of this harmful definition of success on us? Like even if we are able to work out that this is something we struggle with, what kind of hope and what kind of things can we do to actually be able to resist the temptation that is constantly being thrown at us to keep doing this, to keep pursuing success that is actually harmful for us? Yeah, it does seem overwhelming. Uh, I totally agree with you. Um, with, with any journey of learning, uh, we begin with being unconsciously incompetent. In other words, we don't know what we don't know or we have the blind spot. Uh, and that's where many people are unaware about their harmful definition of success. Uh, but for some of the listeners now, you know, people who've been reading the book or part of the online course or whatever, they discover then I do have these harmful definitions of success. And so that's a starting point is to uh, identify the blind spots the, with the help of others, because by definition, you can't see your own blind spot. Um, those things that we've mentioned when you're feeling sad, mad or bad. And then to celebrate, to thank God that at least now we know what we didn't know before. Um, and being honest with ourselves, you know, when, when we're comparing. Uh, so I suffer. So, for example, um, I was in a Bible study group through our university years. There were four of us who graduated together. Um, and now one is an anesthetist, another one a pediatrician, a third one is a reconstructive or plastic surgeon. And then there's me. <laughs> I feel like a success. Well, if I think about the house we live in, I would not feel like a success. Uh, so during those moments, I think, well, how do I define success? Or, I, or when I was pastoring, um, so you mentioned that even in among Christians, we're, we're no different. Uh, we compare, as you say. Yeah. Um, uh, I think people in the world sometimes are just more honest. Um, 
but there were four pastors of us who were quite close. So out of the four pastors um, that were quite close uh, during the six years I was a pastor at Nairobi Chapel, two of them now are bishops. One is a bishop in Nairobi, Kenya. Another one is a bishop in um, Nelson Diocese in New Zealand. A third one is not a bishop, but he uh, his church is over four or five thousand people. They've started maybe 20, 30 churches, even in countries beyond Kenya. So there's those three I just mentioned, and then there's me. <laughs> Do I feel like a success? Uh, so when I think about the list of achievements or the, the number of churches, uh, denominations I lead or whatever, I might not feel like a success. Keeps going back. Is your definition of success harming you? Um, so to acknowledge we are, like the other analogy I have is that we're caught in this whirlpool of self-absorption. Mm. Um, uh, the, the whirlpool of comparison, envy, and so on. So when Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, it's not just money. Mm. I suffer from the greed, wanting more influence. When I think about my mates who are bishops, I might think they have more influence than me. Authors who have sold million copies or whatever. Jesus contradicts against all that definition. Uh, so for me, a reality check is that these outward signs, even if I was part of a church that was growing rapidly, I was part of an organization that we were sending out more and more workers overseas, am I a success in the eyes of Jesus? And it's not always that easy. So when I was a pastor in Kenya, and by that time our church had grown to nearly 2,000 or something, we had five services on the weekend, and I was preparing to preach the sermon. You know, here I'm a educated, well-trained <laughs> pastor, going to preach my heart out. But something happened that early that week, I can't remember, but it must have been a conflict or something because my heart wasn't in a good space. I was quite angry, bitterness, um, and then I was preparing to bring God's word to his people. Then I could hear my our maid, the lady who washed our dirty clothes, singing songs of praise to Jesus. I had one of those rare unnerving moments as if the Lord Jesus came into the room, tapped me on my shoulder and said, Omar, who is a success in my eyes right now? Me, the well-educated pastor, going to preach to thousands of people, heart filled with anger and bitterness, seeking the approval of others, or our maid? who, while she was washing dirty clothes, was connecting with the real Jesus of the Bible, celebrating his joy. So if I can be honest with pastors and ministry leaders, mission leaders, you know, take ourselves off the pedestal. We're not as good as we as <laughs> people think we are. Uh, let's be honest. Let, let's be more transparent. Um, because one of the pink elephants is, I think, is that many speakers, Bible teachers, pastors, leaders, they're not transparent with their weaknesses. Mm. I mean, when was the last time I heard about anybody admit that they suffer greed or envy? I can only think of one. I don't know when Tim Keller preached this message. He, he preached a message and, and then he confessed to some sort of envy. Uh, but that's about the only one that I can think of in the you know most recent years. Um, we, we talk about other people's weaknesses and, and, and frailties and so on. Uh, and I think if we all can be more transparent, we all can acknowledge we're all vessels of clay uh, with lots of cracks, um, but that the power is not of ourselves, uh, the, the gospel that's within us, you know, so that people don't look at us 
They might see Jesus. Uh, what a powerful, like, imagery with your mate. Like, you know, like we, we sort of, like, lose perspective a little bit that our one and only, like, you know, real goal in life is to worship, is to worship God in our actions, in how we live, and that, you know, a lot of these other things that we're often pursuing is not an act of worship. It's an act of, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, some kind of uh, comfort for ourselves. It's some kind of um, affirmation for ourselves. What I find so fascinating, Dr. Omar, is that when you look at Jesus himself, there are so many things that he himself did not have that we think we must. You know, mm. like he didn't have a house. He didn't have a car. I mean, they didn't have cars back then, but he didn't have any kind of That's right. It would have been chariots back then that, you know, they must have, you know, had yeah. chariot magazines. And, you know, so, but he didn't have all of that. And he only lived like 33 years. He His goals for his life and were so different to ours. And so it's even fascinating from that perspective that we can compartmentalise Jesus himself from the way we live and the things that we pursue. Dr. Omar, some of what you have talked about today really would only be touching the surface of what some of our listeners may need to continue the journey with, really. So this could be the first time that they're hearing anything like this because, again, you know, this whole worldly definition of success is just so rampant. Like even in churches, this is we we think this way, we've never thought to question it. So I realise that they are going to, this is would have picked their interest a bit or pricked their interest a little bit and they are going to have to do, go a bit further and delve a little bit deeper on this topic. So please tell uh, the listeners what they can do now. Sure. Um, certainly they can uh, read the book. I mean, all, yes. all jokes aside. Uh, of course. Is that we are just scratching the surface. Um, and as I mentioned, the book's, uh, the book has uh, reflection questions and it's much better that they do it with others. On the website, there's also uh, information about an online course. We, we do it periodically. The next one will be after Easter mm -hmm. for seven weeks online. Um, we get to apply the book. Uh, it's not so much rehashing information, um, but discussion, applying it. Um, we'll be in breakout rooms to share where God is challenging us. Uh, where we need to be redefining success and then we praying for each other. Mm. Um, or as I mentioned, you can do this in, in your church. Yeah, so your book can be bought from redefiningsuccess.com.au, which has links there if you're not based in Australia. So please do go buy that book if this message has at all challenged you. Uh, I really encourage our listeners to try and jump onto some kind of a small group scenario, whether you do that yourself with people you know or jumping on to the online uh, study. That's actually how Dr. Omar and I got to meet each other and got to talk about our, you know, various success journey and all that kind of stuff. And I think that uh, doing the online study really, like, okay, for starters, if you are not a reader, there's a little bit of uh, accountability there because you, you're reading like one chapter per week or something like that. And then you come back and you, and it, it only enhances your, you know, ability to del delve into the content. So if you're not a reader, it just helps you actually commit to reading something uh, with a, a good pace. 
Um, but also it's just that it brings to the surface more like of what you yourself are dealing with when it comes to your own definitions of worldly, worldly success. So really encourage you to do that. Dr. Omar, are there any final words that you have for our listeners? Yeah, once again, thank you, Melanie, for having me on your show. Um, I am concerned that that when I, I have given this message at church, that people don't go away feeling burdened or condemned, uh, guilt. You know, when I talk about giving generously and so on, quoting Piper, um, the intention isn't to um, guilt anyone because fear or guilt motivation, it won't last. I want to encourage all the listeners to be motivated by love. I'll close with this story. When I was first heading off to Kenya, my friends, you know, thought I was being a bit crazy. They're not going to see me for at least three years. I thought they'll give me a good farewell party. They knew I loved chocolate. And at that time, at the there was a fancy hotel downtown Sydney. They had a chocolate festival. So you go into this huge, like a ballroom, uh, quite expensive. My friends paid for me and see all these tables lined with everything chocolate you could imagine. Cakes, uh, cheesecakes, parfait, ice cream. And my favorites were those liqueur scented chocolate. Um, and you could have as much as you like. And I did. And then I had to go to the toilet. Um, and I passed by another hall where there was a signboard, a medical conference, the speakers and the topic. So while I was washing my hands in the toilet, two doctors walked in and overhearing them talking about the conference, seeing everything gold, glittery, beautiful, just had my feel of chocolate. I started having these deep thoughts. You can enjoy this lifestyle, not because your friends paid for you for this evening. Uh, stay working as a medical doctor in Australia. In seven to 10 years, you'll be invited to conferences like this, but you're giving up this lifestyle. You're throwing it away. What for? Is it worth it? Is that the real question? Is it worth it? Some of your listeners in the days, weeks to come when they're finding it so challenging and hard to redefine success according to Jesus, um, their family, friends may not understand them, they're persecuting or ridiculing them and as they witness, or when they're giving uh, generously, selling some of their properties and so on, they think, oh, should I have done that? Let me remind all of us, is it worth it is not the right question. True, I have given up that lifestyle. I can't afford to stay in hotels like that now. Uh, but why did, did I give it up? It wasn't for my home church or SIM or anything. You see, the question needs to always be, is he worth it? Mm, very good. Is Jesus worth that much? I had one of those rare, unnerving experiences if the Lord Jesus walked into that toilet and asked me, Omar, Am I worth this much to you? The presence of Jesus felt so real. I almost cried. I could have, I guess, because by then the doctors had walked out of that toilet. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to shout, yes, Jesus, you're worth this much mm. and much more because you died for me. Mm. Paul puts it best in 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15. For the love of Christ compels us motivates us because we're convinced that he died for all that those who live those of us who've received his gift of life should no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us and was raised again jesus is worth that much 
Jesus is worthy of our devotion. Mm. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped by people of all nations, all ethnic groups, all languages. Uh, Paul says that, that one day every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess and worship Jesus. But we get the honour and the privilege to experience that intimacy with him now. If we resist, refute, will be success and redefine success according to Jesus. Dr. Omar, thank you so, so, so much for jumping on the podcast, for being my guinea pig for interviewing on this podcast. <laughs> I think we set the bar really high, so I'm feeling a little sorry for all guests after this point, but, you know, I'll just have to work a little harder to make it work uh, for them. But honestly, you know, just thank you for your faithfulness to God to take a step of faith to to write this book and to, you know, I know that you've adjusted your work situation to be able to have written this book, to then have published it and for really for the benefit of people in the kingdom to to hear, you know, this, this life-changing message. So, again, just appreciate you so much. And listeners, please connect. Please do whatever you can to get this message into your heart and your spirit. And with that, read well, Sorry, um, since this is the first time, can I pray for, for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Please. To. Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, Father, thank you that we can come to you just as we are and, and whoever might be listening um, in, in uh, weeks, months, years to come. Um, even this very moment, would you invade their presence? Remind them that you are real, Lord Jesus that whether they're jogging, cooking, driving, listening, wherever they might be, they might connect with you, Lord Jesus, the real Jesus of the Bible. And um, when you show us these things, it's never to condemn us, uh, to drive us away from you. Uh, your invitation is always for us to come to you just as we are. I ask that all the listeners, that we might be honest with you and honest with ourselves and with people close to us, that we can come to you just as we are. And Lord, we know we can't do this by ourselves. And so we cry out to you for your help, for you to put the spotlight on our blindness, for you to shine your light upon us. Lord Jesus, would you make yourself so real to us that you would outshine the glitter of this world, that to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant, would mean more than the applause of this world, that to experience intimacy and closeness with you and your joy and peace would mean more than whatever this world might offer. But we can't do that without seeing you, Lord Jesus, so we ask for your revelation. We can't do that without your help, so would you empower us? And we can't do that by ourselves, so would you connect the listeners with a small group of other followers of Jesus, that together we can be redefining success according to Jesus. Let's receive God's grace, His peace, and be motivated by His love. We pray all these and commit one another to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.